This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, a very good afternoon to you and wonderful to be with you on this Wednesday afternoon. Of course, yes, it is Judaism 101.9. Great to be in your company again for the next 45 minutes or so. It has just gone 11 minutes past two and uh, good to be with you and good to be able to chat with you. Um, and what a week has it has it been, or it has been, since um, I last sat in this seat. Think about the fact that um, one week has passed, and a week ago when um, we sat here chatting on Judaism 101.9, um, we had still, at that stage, a president by the name of Jacob Zuma, um, and um, imagine and think about the fact that everything began or every, every, every ball started rolling from uh, that evening. And that evening, of course, we had spoken about was Rosh Chodesh Adar. And, of course, there are all sorts of jokes, I suppose, uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek going around that um, the president, previous president, waited for uh, Rosh Chodesh Adar in order to announce his resignation. Um, and that was why he did it so late on Wednesday evening, he wanted to make sure that it was Rosh Chodesh Adar. But uh, perhaps there's not that much uh, to be surprised about or that much that is really funny about it, but rather that it is actually something very profound and very important and very beautiful in the history of the Jewish people and in the whole story about what this month of Adar and the story of Purim um, and everything that it brings is actually all about. So perhaps... We will begin today just by talking about the important events, the things that we're supposed to bear in mind for the next week, um, and then to reflect a little bit on um, some of the hidden messages within the whole Purim story, the whole month of Adar, and some of the things to bear in mind, uh, perhaps when we are uh, building up to this special Chag, the special festival of Purim. So... Let's begin by talking about this coming Shabbat. This coming Shabbat, Shabbos um, that comes up at the end of this week, is known by a special name. It is called Shabbat Zachor. Zachor because it is the Shabbos on which we take out two Sifrei Torah, two Torah scrolls are removed from the Ark on a, on Shabbat morning, and uh, two different Parshiot are read, the one. Um, interestingly enough, all about the building of the Mishkan, the, which will become relevant as we discuss a little bit further about the building of the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, and particularly the second temple in Jerusalem, which has a relevance to the story of Purim, and um, the um, various artifacts, the various parts of that Mishkan, of that tabernacle in Parshat Tetzaveh. It is all about the big day kahuna, the Kohen's dressing, the garb of the Kohen, of the Kohen Gadol, um, and the way that uh, the Kohanim had to be dressed when they came to perform the divine service, service in the temple. There are many, many references um, within this parsha to the various different artifacts, the menorah, um, which gave it its spiritual light and spread that light outwards and made it the beacon of light and the proof of the fact that uh, God's Shekhinah, that God's divine presence, dwelt in that space, in that Mishkan, in that tabernacle. So that is the first parsha, the first um, reading that is done on Shabbat morning from Parsha Tetzaveh. We then read from the second Torah about Amalek. Amalek, 
who was the forerunner, uh, probably, of all anti-Semitism or um, attempts to thwart the Jewish people in their uh, path of uh, trying to accomplish and achieve what they needed to achieve, what they were gifted with being chosen to achieve in this world. And that was what Amalek actually did, stepping into our path, trying to prevent us in a way from getting to Mount Sinai, to Har Sinai, to receive the Torah. This is what Amalek students often being compared to the fact that Amalek was the one or the nation who tried to see to it that we should not be so enthusiastic. We had come out of Egypt and we were really, really hot stuff. We were powerful. Um, nobody wanted to touch us. Amalek may have got his fingers burnt or more than that, but um, he cooled us off for anybody else to attempt to attack and uh, to think that they could get at us, not only in our um, 40 years that we were busy getting closer to Israel, but um, throughout history. And it seems very often that um, the uh, forebear of anti-Semitism, of the attempts to thwart the Jewish people from getting to where they should be going, um, was from this profoundly evil and difficult nation called Amalek. And so Haman, the uh, anti-hero of the story, the villain of the story of Purim, is actually descendant directly from Amalek. So we read about him on this coming Shabbat, and it is a short piece that is read from the um, end towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy about the obligation to remember what Amalek did to us, to destroy that memory, not allow it to get to us, not allow it to upset us, not allow us to be distracted or led off the path that we are supposed to be uh, traversing um, by this character or by this element or by this um, trait within ourselves sometimes that can be of an Amalek kind of a hue of an Amalek kind of a color. And so we um, read about Amalek and it is known as Zachor, Zachor mean, meaning remember. We need to remember Amalek, we need to forget what Amalek uh, does to us or we need to forget the um, the influence that it has on us, move on, step forward and uh, rise up to uh, be triumphant in achieving what we need to achieve as Jews in our daily and in our regular tasks. So that happens on this coming Shabbat, Parshat, Shabbat Zachor. It is always read on the Shabbat before Purim. So, of course, then Purim occurs during the coming week, but not before we have commemorated, which we will next week, the fast of Esther. So next week, Wednesday, and next week this time, we will be in the midst of Tainit Esther, the fast of Esther. And of course, it was Esther who um, got the Jewish people to fast before she went in to speak with the king and plead on behalf of her people and actually eventually revealed to him that uh, she was actually Jewish. This was all part of the Purim story that we probably know quite well. And that happened um, on the days before um, the feared days of the execution of the Jews that was destined for um, for this time for Purim and for the month of Adar. But the idea of fasting is something that is always um, instilled in the Jewish calendar in order to bring about tshuva, in order to bring about a feeling of 
um, our dependence on God and our need to repent and to make good on the things that we've got wrong. And of course, it symbolizes that here as well. Um, the idea of fasting, not only in deference to, not only because they fasted all those years ago in the story of Purim, but in order to bring about some kind of timely correction within our own lives and make sure that we um, know what is right and what is correct and what we need to do and how we need to progress and move forward in our uh, daily lives. So it's a daytime only fast. We'll begin early in the morning on next Wednesday, go all the way through until after the reading of the Megillah on Wednesday night, because, of course, then next Wednesday night and Thursday um, is actually Purim. That's already the end of the month of February and going into March. The 1st of March, actually, is the day of Purim. And um, this Purim day, of course, celebrated with the famous and well-known, hopefully, um, beautiful things that are laid out in the Megillah itself, in the, in the blueprint of Purim and the story of Purim, where we eat festive meals, where we um, give matanat le'evyonim, we give matanot le'evyonim, we give um, gifts to the poor of a monetary value, we give um, uh, food gifts to friends, to a friend at least, and we make sure that we hear the reading of the Megillah of the story of Purim twice, once in the evening, that'll be Wednesday night, and the second time in the daytime on Thursday of next week. We'll be back with you right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. So let's get to a little bit of an analysis um, of some of the major themes, perhaps ones that you have thought about, perhaps ones that you haven't thought about, that occur in the Megillah. Just to put it into context, the Megillah takes place just under 70 years after the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash, the first temple. And in fact, it was still a time when there were um, great people around, great prophets, even those um, that are mentioned include Daniel, Mordechai, uh, Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, um, and others were still around at this time. And um, 52 years, in fact, after the destruction of the temple, a king by the name of Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, um, saw himself as the one who needed to begin, rebegin, and restart, and rebuild the temple. It all came to a halt under Ahasuerus um, a few years later, and this Ahasuerus, king of Persia, and then um, who was actually married to the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, um, actually then decided that he was going to put a stop to it, that the rabid anti-Semite, anti-Jewish, wanted to uh, pronounce on the rejoicing of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and um, so on, and joined and ably assisted by Haman, um, he uh, sets the scene for the whole story of the Megillah. But I'd like to read to you, if I may, a synopsis that is brought in uh, the Kol Menachem Megillah right in the beginning, which gives us a very, very a broad overview, but uh, really, really succinctly put, um, and I couldn't express it better. So if you'll bear with me, just uh, let's listen to some of the details of um, the story in the Megillah. So the book begins with a tale of gross indulgence. Achashverosh, king of Persia and Media, throws two extraordinarily lavish banquets, one for his immediate circle and another for the men of the capital, Shushan. His wife, Queen Vashti, hosts a third banquet for her circle of friends and staff. 
Details of the sheer opulence of these feasts are not spared, preparing us for the first of many reversals and anticlimaxes which fill the Megillah. The most powerful and wealthy man in the world, who rules over 127 provinces, cannot get his wife to listen to him. Thoroughly intoxicated, Ahasuerus sends an escort of no less than seven chamberlains, summoning Vashti to the men's banquet to display her beauty. She refuses. The king, rendered weak and ineffectual, in the midst of a banquet which is supposed to display his power, is thrown into an uh, uncontrollable rage. But despite Vashti's public insubordination, which would ordinarily spell an instant death sentence, Akashverosh does not order her to execution right away. We get the impression that he wishes to hold on to his beautiful wife as he consults with seven trusted advisers, hoping for some way out of this mess. The king, however, is trumped by Persian bureaucracy. If the queen will be spared, his advisers argue, the patriarchal subordination of women will be undermined. It is crucial that the king seizes this opportunity to punish Vashti and that it is publicized to the entire nation by royal edict to preserve the androcentric status quo of Persian society. The king quickly consents, and the documents are issued. It is not long, of course, before Ahasuerus is seeking another woman. Once again, the king's inner sense of powerlessness seems to be compensated for by excessive behavior. He orders a selection process to include every beautiful young woman throughout his vast empire. Among these young women is a Jewish girl called Hadassah, though for the rest of the story she is referred to, in fact, by her Gentile name, Esther. She is an orphan, adopted by her cousin Mordechai, an immigrant who has enjoyed a meteoric rise to prominence in Ahasuerus' court. Disguising her ethnicity, Esther is drawn into the contest and astonishingly, she wins. The coronation is cause for yet another banquet, the fourth of ten feasts that we read of in this short book. As many have noted, God is not mentioned explicitly in the Megillah, but Esther's appointment before the rise of Haman is the first clear evidence of his presence. The following passage seems unrelated but proves crucial to the story. Mordechai learns of an assassination plot against the king and through Esther informs the monarch, saving his life. But when the plot is confirmed and the perpetrator is executed, for some undeclared reason, Mordechai is not rewarded right away. Later, this unpaid royal favor will be instrumental in the story. Just as the Jews are enjoying unprecedented political safety and national integration, Homon, a descendant of biblical Amalek, the nemesis of Israel, rises to power. Rapidly, he plots to exterminate the Jews, fueled by Mordechai's consistent refusal to bow to him. Aware that the Jews are notoriously difficult to dispose of, he costs a lot to determine an auspicious day for his planned genocide. With some brief anti-Semitic rhetoric and an offer of a large bribe, the king is soon convinced. When the decree is published to destroy all the Jews, including women and children, pandemonium erupts. In the midst of all this, the king and Haman sit down to celebrate yet another feast. Mordechai, along with many other Jews, initiate public displays of repentance, of fasting, and of mourning. Then, in a thrilling exchange facilitated by a messenger, Queen Esther and Mordechai clash over the best course of action. In in Mordechai's only recorded speech in the Megillah, he requests Esther to intercede and speak to the king, but she declines, arguing that such a move would be suicidal. 
Esther is fully aware that her predecessor was, el- was eliminated due to insubordination, and she is highly reluctant to appear before the king unannounced, an act punishable in Persia by death. Eventually, Mordechai's rhetoric is effective, and Esther consents to chance upon the king, provided that the Jews, all the Jews, first make the appropriate spiritual preparations by conducting a three-day fast. When Esther dares to enter the king's inner court uninvited, he is not at all disturbed by her breach of protocol. Effusing adoration for Esther, Achashverosh offers her as much as half the kingdom, but she only asks for a banquet with the king and Haman. When they gather, the king repeats his offer, but Esther only sharpens the suspense as she repeats her request for yet another dinner party with the king and the prime minister. Haman's delight at all this attention soon evaporates when Mordechai once again refuses to bow down to him. When Haman shares his mixed emotions with Zeresh, his wife, she suggests eliminating Mordechai immediately on a giant gallows. Haman loves the idea and has a gallows built. At this point, a series of reversals begins, which will characterize the rest of the Megillah. The king, who is suffering from insomnia, has the royal annals read out to him. Remarkably, at this very moment when Homon seeks Mordechai's life, the king is reading a passage recounting the assassination attempt that Mordechai had exposed and for which he had never received any glory or recompense. Homon is spotted lurking around the king's court, waiting for an opportunity to ask the king to execute Mordechai, and instead the king asks him for a suggestion on how to honor Mordechai. The hilarity of the moment is all the more sharpened by Homan's initial misunderstanding, thinking that the king wishes to favor him. Homan's chosen horror for himself, donning of royal garb and riding the king's horse, is bestowed then on Mordechai. Homan's shame is compounded when the king orders him to escort Mordechai personally. After following the king's wishes, parading Mordechai around the city on the king's horse, Homan is utterly humiliated. In a brief scene at home, Haman's wife now reveals that she is pessimistic about his future, but without time for any discussion, Haman is rushed to the palace. At the climactic second banquet, Esther finally makes an appeal for her people to be saved. The king, apparently still oblivious to Esther's Jewish identity, demands to know who had dared to concoct this evil plot. Esther points to Haman, and it is all too much for the king who exists, who is sorry, who exits in a rage. Haman, seeing his end near, approaches Esther's couch in a last plea for his life. In yet another hilarious scene, the king returns just as Haman is falling all over Esther. When the king accuses Haman of making an advance against his wife, the chamberlain in attendance realizes that Haman must be immediately removed. Upon the chamberlain's suggestion, Haman is hanged in the very same gallows that he had built to eliminate Mordechai. Only then is the king calmed. Just as we imagine the story is over, a further complication arises. Even as Haman's estate is handed over victoriously to Esther, the king refuses to annul Haman's genocidal decree against the Jews, claiming that once a law is passed, it cannot be revoked. He nevertheless grants Esther and Mordechai permission to modify the decree in the Jews' favor. This turns out to be even better than a legal nullification, as now the edict is modified to say that instead of of Persians killing Jews, Jews will be allowed to kill Persians. As soon as the new document is dispatched and Mordechai emerges from the palace, the Jews rejoice ecstatically. Now, in an ultimate reversal of the plot, the Persians are terrified of what the Jews might do to them. The Jews take advantage of the new edict to eliminate their enemies. Haman's ten sons are killed, along with 500 men in Shushan alone, but they do not take any spoils. 
The king is disturbed by the violence, but surprisingly, he asks Esther of his own accord if she has any further requests. In an audacious but necessary move, the queen pleads for yet another day of sanctioned violence so that the Jews can finish off many enemies that still remain. The results, This results in a total of 75,000 being eliminated. The day on which the Jews were finally safe, the 14th of Adar, is enacted by Mordechai and Esther both individually and jointly as a public holiday to be observed through joyous banqueting, giving of food gifts to each other and charity to the poor. A brief epilogue informs us that in the aftermath of the story, Mordechai remained a powerful figure in Persia who pursued the welfare of the people but remained under the rule of Ahasuerus. So, beautiful synopsis there of the entire story of Purim. But it, of course, raises several um, very, very powerful and important um, um, facts and details that have become the defining facts of the story of Purim until today. If we think about some of the very, very key and important facets of the story of Purim, of course, we've mentioned along the way, and we did last week as well, the idea of the hiddenness, the fact that everything is concealed. Esther is concealed. In fact, that's what the name Esther actually means. If we check out the name Esther, it actually means um, hidden. She is hidden. She's not only modest, she doesn't utter a word uh, that is unnecessary or do anything that is uh, unnecessary. She is the epitome of modesty and hiddenness, hiding her inner power, her inner self. But there is much more to that, and that is that the entire um, idea of God being hidden, as we mentioned before, in the Megillah is of profound significance. The fact is that the Megillah wants us to bring out our belief in God and our recognition of the fact that God is actually behind everything, that it is not just about God being out there um, in, in a kind of in blazing miracles and in uh, wonders and incredible things and incredible details, but every little coincidence and every little nuance and every little uh, leaf, in fact, that falls from a tree is something that is governed by and is engineered by and planned by the Almighty, by God himself. And therefore, the hiddenness of God in um, the Purim story is a very, very powerful message in and of itself. But perhaps we can suggest some of the other very important um, ideas that um, come with the Purim story. Perhaps the first one is the concept of Mesiras Nefesh. And of course, I'm borrowing from several themes that were addressed over many years by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, by um, our Rebbe, detailing in Fabrengens, in uh, various um, gatherings that were held, um, particularly with reference to Purim, and some of the themes, not all of them, of course, but some of the themes that were addressed, that were picked up upon and were there as very, very powerful messages for each and every one of us to take out of the Purim story. So if the first one is the concept of Mesiras Nefesh, the idea of people being able to um, really give up their lives rather than um, have God or the Jewish people or our Torah disgraced in any way. So we don't actually see, <coughs> excuse me, we don't actually see any real religious devotion in the story of the Megillah. 
But um, if we take a look at what the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, wrote, he notes that the decree of genocide was only directed to Yehudim, which he suggests is rather a religious affirmation than an ethnic one. So if any Jew would have converted, in other words, to another religion, um, they would have been spared. And this then um, means that the book of Esther is actually all about Jews standing up and saying, you know what, um, for the entire year that this edict um, was hanging over our heads, everybody had to choose. Was he going to choose his Judaism or his life? And all Jews, argued Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, actually withstood this test, having slipped up perhaps in some of the other actions that they took, which some say was the actual cause of the whole decree against the Jewish people in the first place. They withstood this test, and they rendered it the most impressive display of devotion to Judaism in history, especially when we consider that it was largely a very, very secularized community who were in the diaspora and therefore trying to impress um, the people all around them and the nation under which they now fell, um, that they were becoming more Persian than that they were Jewish. So the paradigm of Mesirath Nefesh was... um, uh, Mordechai, who clearly risked his life for his religion by refusing to bow down to Homon, and that was the display that Mordechai put on, but really it was the entire Jewish people who backed him up with their own Mesirat Nefesh, and that, of course, is a very powerful theme developed out of the story of Purim. Be back with you right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. So we've been spending some time summarizing some of the, and looking at some of the important themes, some of the important ideas that were brought to the fore by the rabbi in honor of the story of Purim or what the real meaning is behind the Megillah. And a second theme is the concept of divine providence. Well, we all have heard that those words bandied around, but what is really our belief in them? The idea of divine providence is that there is nothing that happens in this world without God having engineered that it should happen. It's impossible for anything to happen without God's continuous input and uh, manufacture and um, planning to make sure that these things actually happen. Well, um, Mordechai and Esther are profoundly aware of this fact because they see and they understand that this was not something that uh, was caused. The decree of Haman and Ahasuerosh was not something that was caused purely by man alone, but that God was sending us a message, and it is Mordechai and Esther who then see to it that the Jewish people do things of repentance, uh, the fasting and so on. Um, And Mordechai is dressed in his sackcloth, even though he shouldn't have been in the palace of the king, and so on, to show and to demonstrate that um, it is up to God to make sure that all these difficulties and these decrees against us are in fact overturned and uh, turned around, which is um, a very, very significant part of the story of the Megillah. So 
um, they make sure that um, everybody understands and that we understand uh, the concept, the notion of divine providence, that nothing happens by chance. Furthermore, uh, the concept of God being hidden in the Megillah. In other words, God's name itself is not mentioned in the Megillah at all. Well, sometimes when we think about uh, this, we could think, well, how can that actually be something that would teach us divine providence? Surely we should spell it out that God was the one who... Um, who actually engineered and made sure that all of these things should and could happen. Well, the concept of God being there when there are great wonders and miracles is almost uh, as though we are forced into recognizing and believing um, that God is present when it is a little bit hidden. When things happen in a slightly hidden fashion, well, this inspires um, the um, input from human beings, from us, to recognize the godliness within everything, and it brings out our particular belief in the concept of um, the hiddenness of the divine providence, and it is perhaps even more powerful than when it comes in a way of coincidences or miracles that happen or seem to happen in a very, very um, natural, ordinary, material kind of a fashion, physical fashion, rather than things that are um, bolts of lightning that uh, come down from heaven. And uh, perhaps even more than that is the fact that um, God is so completely hidden in the Megillah that we infer that um, everything happens at the beckoning at the hand of the king and we refer over and over and over again to the king of course directly this refers to the king Achashverosh but in a deeper Kabbalistic more mystical fashion we understand that the reference of Melech of king is the Melech Malchei Hamlachim the king of all kings who is God himself there is a further theme that is developed, um, which is around the fact that um, the essence of the Jew is always close and connected and um, attached to the Almighty. The Jewish people at the time of the story of the Megillah of Purim were um, in the early stages of diaspora. They had been sent into Galut. There was seemingly no reason for them to have been close. Um, and in fact, they were out, as we said before, to impress the people around them, to integrate into society, to become more Persian than the Persians, to become more involved in the regular society um, than they had ever dreamt was possible. And yet, when push came to shove, and when it was needed for them to demonstrate their Mesiris Nefesh, when it was needed for them to stand up and be counted amongst the Jewish people with the threat of a um, day on which they would all be executed, every one of them passed that test. And of course, it became one of the mainstays of the concept of outreach, of reaching out to those who seemingly are a little bit distant, but as the Rebbe so often explained, are really as close as um, everybody else could possibly be um, to the Almighty, to God. Um, and all that we need to do is uh, scrape off, uh, dust away a little bit of the dust that may have accumulated, and we reveal the essence of the Jewish soul in the most powerful and pertinent fashion. The theme of Amalek comes up in the story of Purim, as we mentioned before, which we read on this coming Shabbat, of Parshat Zachor, as we mentioned as well. Um, the concept of Amalek, Amalek being the idea of 
um, pouring cold water literally over our enthusiasm, curbing the enthusiasm, um, which Amalek is wont to do. Now that was the uh, personage of Amalek and the people who followed his ways. But um, the idea of Amalek, of uh, this um, doubt in ourselves and in where we're going and what we should be doing, that sometimes comes along to pour the figurative cold water and to curb our enthusiasm um, is something that is probably latent within each and every one of us as well. And it is something that needs to be fought. It needs to be pushed out. Um, we cannot entertain the uh, cooling off and uh, the cold water that our Amalek seems to push or pour onto our enthusiasm. Um, one of the powerful themes of the Megillah, of course, is uh, women. You know, the Megillah is called Megillat Esther. It is named after the woman who is the hero of the story or the heroine of the story, rather than Mordechai, who seems to play an equal, if not somewhat greater part um, in the story of the Megillah. But why? Because um, while Judaism has often had leveled against it and Torah stories and Torah application, uh, the idea of it being um, for men only and uh, somewhat male chauvinist and, and so on. The story of the Megillah is the very, very fly in that ointment because uh, the story of the Megillat Esther is about the deep and profound and special power behind the Jewish women, uh, women who are prepared to sacrifice their lives for um, the Jewish people, for God, for Torah, as Esther was um, the epitome of that and her epitome of being what a modest woman should be. Yes, of course, she was beautiful and her beauty was something that was utilized in order for God to get her into that position where she could help her people. And of course, um, Esther is not only beautiful for her external looks, but she is beautiful because of her intellect. She is beautiful because of the power of her mind. She is beautiful because of her midot, of her attributes, which are so powerful and so important. And so the concept of uh, feminism um, that perhaps only dawned upon um, people all over the world <clears throat> towards the middle of the last um, century um, was uh, something that was expounded upon in the Megillah all those centuries ago as well. Um, Jewish education, the idea that um, children were educated, were brought by Mordechai, gathered together in order to help to thwart the plans of Haman and Achashverosh and the overthrow of the Jewish people. The idea of being able to transcend our uh, barriers of uh, rational thinking and so on um, is another theme that comes up in the story of the Megillah where we have the idea of having to reach a state on Purim where we are above rational reasoning and uh, true uh, thinking along a, um, a logical kind of a line, but understanding that not everything in this world that God does is uh, that logical. Of course, um, we need to make sure and ensure that we keep to all the rules and regulations of Purim, which we will expound upon a little bit more next week, um, being that we will still meet up uh, before Purim itself. But it's fascinating as we think about this very, very powerful image um, over the next 10 days or so, um, the power of Purim, the power of what it means for us, and the fact that it brings us to a state really of simcha, of real joy, because joy is not always logical, because um, what joy 
um, means is that we are in a happy frame of mind and we're in a positive frame of mind even sometimes when it doesn't seem as though that would be the, the right, the correct, the logical thing to do. And it all depends on our faith, our recognition of divine providence, our understanding that God is the one that's behind everything that happens to us, that will happen to us, and that we are actually... It's been a pleasure to be with you this afternoon and uh, to be able to share some thoughts with you. I look forward to being back with you again next week, same time, same place. Wish you a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead, and I hope to see you again next week, same time, on Judaism 101.9.